Book Five, Chapter One, Part Four of the History of the Inquisition of Spain, Volume Two. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Guero. The History of the Inquisition of Spain, Volume Two, by Henry Charles Lee. Book Five, Resources, Chapter One, Part Four, Confiscation. As has been seen in other matters, the great High Court of Granada was recalcitrant and persisted in asserting its jurisdiction. In 1571 and 1573 it entertained cases relating to confiscations, in both of which it was told by Philip II to hold its hand and not to meddle with such affairs. Despite this, in 1575 it intervened in a case which suggests the reasonable objection felt to rendering the Inquisition a judge in its own cause. The creditors of Don Diego de Castilla had embargoed his property, and the court had placed it in the hands of an administrator for their benefit. But the tribunal of Murcia chanced to hold a censo of his for a thousand ducats. The juez de los bienes stepped in, seized the property, sold it, and kept the money. The chancellery was seeking to obtain justice for the other creditors. It arrested the juez and threw him into prison, when Philip again intervened, ordering his liberation and the abandonment of the case. It illustrates the independence of the kingdoms of the crown of Aragon, that when the tax-collectors of Valencia levied taxes and imposts on confiscated property and its sale, Charles V was obliged to appeal to the Holy See for its prevention. Clement VII obligingly granted a bull, July 7, 1525, forbidding this under pain of excommunication, and a fine of a thousand ducats to the papal camera. The inquisitor-general was named as conservator and judge to enforce it by censures and interdict and invocation of the secular arm, which doubtless put an end to the practice. As the operations of the Inquisition developed, an additional source of gain was found in speculating upon the terror pervading the new Christian communities. Whether the idea originated in their mercantile instincts, or in the desire of the sovereigns for prompt realization, cannot be determined, but it was, in essence, a kind of rude and imperfect insurance against certain contingencies of confiscation, for which those in danger were willing to pay a heavy premium. As early as September 6, 1482, in a letter of Ferdinand to Luis Cabaniges, governor of Valencia, there occurs an allusion to an arrangement of this kind, made with the conversos of that city, under which apparently they had agreed to pay a certain sum in lieu of the confiscations, and had appointed assessors to apportion the share of each individual. Some of those thus assessed refused to pay, and Ferdinand ordered them to be coerced by imprisonment. What were the exact terms of this we have no means of knowing, but on June 6, 1488, he made another bargain with the Valencia conversos, who were reconciled under an edict of grace, by which they paid him for exemption from confiscation, apparently rather a fresh impost, for this reconciliation substituted fines for confiscation. Then April 6, 1491, he confirmed this, 
and, for a further payment of five thousand ducats, he added exemption for heretical acts subsequently committed, if they did not amount to relapse, and for imperfect confessions made under the Edict of Grace, for, as we shall see hereafter, such confessions were frequently a source of danger arising from trifling omissions, construed by the inquisitors as rendering them fictitious and entailing relaxation. It is an indelible disgrace to Ferdinand that in these compositions he did not keep faith with those whose money he took. In 1499 the Suprema took exception to this arrangement, probably in consequence of complaints that it was violated by the seizure and sale of properties comprehended under it. Then Ferdinand declared that it had not been his intention to relieve from confiscation those whose confessions had been imperfect, whereupon the Suprema ordered the inquisitors and receiver to prosecute and confiscate the property of all such penitents, in spite of the agreement. Even the hardened receiver Aliaga seems to have hesitated to obey these orders, for Ferdinand was obliged to write him, September 27th, that they were to be executed notwithstanding the privilege and its confirmation. The hardships inflicted on the innocent by this breach of faith are illustrated in a petition presented in 1519 to Charles V by Juan and Beatriz Quimera, children of Bernat and Violante Quimera, who, after the composition of 1488, had been condemned for imperfect confession and their property confiscated. Juan and Beatriz, with other children in the same position, appealed to Ferdinand, who, under the provision of April 6, 1491, ordered the receiver to restore all such property. They received and enjoyed possession for twelve years, after which, under the orders of 1499, the inquisitors took it from them. From this they appealed, but were too poor to follow it up, and the Suprema declared the appeal abandoned. Now they prayed Charles for the restoration of their property, and showed that, after the execution of their parents, they had paid all the installments remaining of the composition. In view of this, Charles, as a special grace and in the exercise of the royal clemency, ordered, not that the property of which they had been robbed should be restored, but that the receiver should repay them what the inquisitors might find that they had paid of the composition after the death of their parents, without deducting therefrom the claim of the fisc for the income of the property during their twelve years' possession. Even worse, if possible, was Ferdinand's course in a composition made, September 10, 1495, with the heirs and successors of all who, in Aragon, had died up to that time, and whose memories had been or might in future be condemned. For the sum of five thousand ducats he abandoned, to those who contributed, all the confiscations of their inheritances, and also the inheritances of those who refused to contribute, to be distributed among them in proportion to their contributions. Inferentially, this was confirmed when, in 1499, in view of trouble with the receiver, at the prayer of the contributors, he appointed Vicente de Bordalba, administrator of the property to claim and hold it and distribute it to the owners. After seven years had passed, in 1502, he was seized with qualms of conscience at thus violating the canon law which incapacitated the children of heretics as inheritors. It is true that he might have assumed the property, 
and then made a free gift of it, as was frequently done in special cases, but his scruples were too delicate for such a subterfuge. By letters of December 13, 1502, to the inquisitors and assessor, he ordered the seizure and confiscation of all the property thus devolved and the return to the contributors, in all cases where they were sufferers, of the money which they had paid, thus retaining the contributions of those who had not profited by the composition. This breach of faith made an immense sensation in Saragossa, and even his son, the archbishop, ventured to remonstrate when he replied sanctimoniously that he was acting by the advice of learned and God-fearing men, who had demonstrated to him that he could not, with a clear conscience, and without peril to his soul, grant a privilege contrary to the canon law. The sufferers must have patience, for it was in accordance with the canons of Holy Mother Church which were obligatory on him. The inquisitors and receiver were not over nice in utilizing their opportunity, and complaints speedily came pouring in that, besides the inheritances, they seized all the property belonging to the heirs, including their acquisitions and the dowries of their wives, and that, moreover, they did not repay the contributions. Thus, before the month of December 1502 was out, the brothers Buendia appealed to him. They had paid 15,000 sueldos to the composition, and now the receiver had seized what they had inherited from their father. Much of this they had sold. They had acquired other properties by their labor. They had inherited from their mother, who was an old Christian, and had received dowries with their wives, all of which was included in the seizure. Ferdinand merely reported this to the inquisitor, with a vague order to do justice so as not to afford grounds for complaint. It is easy to conceive the confusion of titles, the multiplicity of suits, and the amount of misery resulting from this arbitrary abrogation of a contract. Resistance was prolonged, but it was unavailing, for Ferdinand held good and repeated his peremptory orders January 4 and March 8, 1503, July 8 and November 7, 1504, and October 7, 1508. It would appear, moreover, that many of the contributors who suffered never obtained a return of their money, for this formed the subject of one of the articles of the Aragonese Concordia of 1512, confirmed in the 1516 bull of Leo X, providing that whoever had joined in a composition for the property of the dead, and had paid his money, if the deceased was subsequently convicted and the fisc seized his inheritance, he should recover from the estate what he had paid, provided the payment had not been made out of the effects of the deceased. It was thus admitted that the contracts were no bar to the Inquisition. There were various forms of these compositions, ensuring against the different risks and disabilities to which the property of the conversos was exposed, but they all had this in common, that the contributor threw his money into a pool from which his chance of deriving advantage was in the highest degree problematical. It is therefore a striking evidence of the desperation to which the new Christians were reduced, that they were eager to grasp at these forlorn chances, and to pour their money into the ever-gaping royal treasury, while Ferdinand, in spite of his conscientious scruples, was always ready to speculate on their despair. It is impossible now to say how many compositions were made, from first to last, 
but they probably covered nearly the whole of Spain at one time or another. We have seen that there was one in Cordova prior to 1500, which was highly profitable to the inquisitor who managed it, and another of uncertain date in Andalusia, volume 1, pages 190-220. There was one in Orihuela in 1492, and a second in Valencia in 1498, and, in 1515, there were others in Biscayan provinces and in Cuenca. Occasionally, moreover, inquisitors were authorized to enter into such bargains with individuals as in Majorca in 1498 and in Catalonia in 1512. A specimen of these individual compositions is revealed to us in an investigation made in 1487 by Dr. Alfonso Ramírez, juez de los bienes of Toledo, into the accounts of Juan de Urria, the late receiver, who was reported to have defrauded the fisc of more than a million and a half maravedis. Pedro de Toledo had fled to Portugal to escape trial, and his wife, Isabel Díaz, arranged with Urria for a royal letter of security and pardon for him, his property and his paternal inheritance, for which the price agreed upon was half a million maravedis, in addition to which Urria was promised a hundred florins for his services. Pedro returned and paid for the letter, when Isabel gave Urria thirteen gold cruzados and fourteen pieces of cloth, which he sold and claimed that he was five hundred maravedis short. This was productive, but still more so was one, in 1514, by which Francisco Sanchez of Talavera ransomed the estate of his deceased father for a million maravedis. These transactions justify the conclusion that persecution was largely a matter of finance as well as of faith. Such conviction is strengthened by the history of the greatest of the general compositions, a most prolonged and involved transaction, of which space will permit only the barest outline. It commenced with a composition, signed December 7, 1508, with Seville and Cadiz, by which, in consideration of twenty thousand ducats, there was made over to the penanced and condemned, or to their heirs, all confiscated property in suit or that had not been discovered and seized from the commencement of the Inquisition up to November 30th, except what was included in the Auto de Fe of October 29th. The property of those who did not join in the agreement, and paid their assessments, was liable to seizure, and all amounts thus realized were to be deducted from the payment. There was also granted the valued privilege of going to and trading with the Indies, forbidden to all reconciliados. This was extended, October 10, 1509, in the name of Queen Juana, covering the archbishopric of Seville. The bishopric of Cadiz and the towns of Lepe, Ayamonte, and La Redondilla, and providing for the payment of 40,000 ducats, for which the queen made to the contributors a donation of all real and personal property, forfeit to her from persons reconciled and guilty of imperfect confessions or other offenses prior to reconciliation. Also all the property of those who had died reconciled or to be reconciled, and forfeitable, by reason of prior offences, together with all property confiscated on those who refused to contribute. All alienations made by contributors were confirmed to the purchasers, and contributors were relieved from all penalties incurred for disregarding the disabilities inflicted on those reconciled and their descendants. 
On the other hand, it was expressly stated that the grant did not exempt the property of those who relapsed or committed offenses subsequent to reconciliation, nor did it relieve them from prosecution in person or fame. After this, for some cause, the total payment was increased to eighty thousand ducats, of which sixty thousand were for the composition and twenty thousand for rehabilitation or removal of disabilities. The first obstacle lay in the assembling of the enormous mass of papers relating to the old confiscations. The tribunal of Leon, which held some of them, refused to deliver them, and the same occurred with papers concerning Ecija, requiring repeated peremptory orders from Ferdinand to procure their deposit in the castle of Triana for inspection. At last the unwieldy business was got under way. Assessors were appointed to make the assessments on contributors, but troubles arose and the whole affair was put in the hands of Pedro de Villasís, the experienced receiver of Seville, who had been instrumental in getting up the agreement of 1508. The work went on, and large collections were made, although delays in payment incurred penalties, which, by 1515, amounted to 750,000 maravedis, to be paid to the tribunal of seville but it never got the money encouraged by this initial success the scheme was extended over the kingdom of granada the bishoprics of cordoba jaen badajoz coria and plasencia and the province of leon the sum agreed upon for them being fifty thousand ducats complaints however arose about injustice in the assessments payments were not forthcoming in time difficulties apparently insuperable accumulated and ferdinand after consultation with jimenez and the suprema revoked the composition then it was revived and ferdinand january eighteen fifteen fifteen placed it in the hands of vijasis whose instructions justify the assumption that under the guise of an act of mercy the whole scheme was merely the pretext for fresh exactions on the defenceless he was ordered to proclaim the composition in all places within the districts concerned, to order all persons obligated to pay their contributions. Those proposing to join were to appear before him by their procurators at a specified time and arrange the assessments to be paid by each place or person, such assessments being binding on the absent. As for those who refused to join, Vijasis was empowered to levy on their property as being jointly liable and to sell it at auction, giving to the purchasers good and sufficient title, guaranteed by the crown, while all secular officials were required to give him whatever aid he required. Inquisitors were to do the same, and were to commission as alguacils such persons as he might name. Letters were sent to the corregidors of the towns, telling them that some contributors refused to pay, and they were empowered to decide all such questions summarily and finally. That the matter was really an unauthorized impost, enforced by the authority of the Inquisition, would appear not only from this admittance of secular jurisdiction, but also from what we know as to the methods pursued in the original composition of Seville, each town was assessed at a certain sum which it divided at discretion among the contributors. When Alcázar was assessed at a thousand ducats, it remonstrated to Ferdinand, who kindly ordered execution suspended. Other places were not so fortunate. 
and the pitiless exaction of the assessment provoked resistance. Thus in March, 1514, when, by order of the tribunal and as representative Vijasis, Fernando Royz went to San Lucar de Barrameda, he seized some slaves and other property and placed them in prison for safekeeping. The Duchess of Medina Sidonia ordered the alcalde to return them to their masters and would allow no further levies to be made. Ferdinand forthwith rebuked her, ordering her to assist the officials and never again to interfere in matters concerning the Inquisition. He also wrote to the inquisitors to inflict due punishment on the person and property of the alcalde and all connected with the affair. The levies and executions must proceed and the money be collected, for the last installment of the composition was to be paid by the end of May. This indicates that the Seville composition had been fairly productive, but the other had continued to drag. With the death of Ferdinand in January 1516, pressure was removed and resistance became general. A cedula issued in the name of Queen Juana, February 24th, states that those who were assessed were refusing to pay and were supported by nobles and magnates, wherefore the inquisitors of Seville, Cordova, Jaén, and León were instructed to enforce the payments by levy and execution and to prosecute with all rigor those who impeded the collection, irrespective of their rank and dignity. This was ineffective. In Cordoba, the Count of Cabra and the Marquis of Priego forced the agents of Vijasis to abandon work among their vassals, and the latter compelled them to deposit sixty thousand maravedis which they had collected. It was in vain that the governors of Castile ordered them to desist, and when in September the Count of Cabra justified his persistence by stating that his people had paid their composition to Rodrigo de Madrid, who had organized the scheme, and he would not allow them to be coerced into duplicate payments, he and the Marquis were told that Rodrigo had no authority and that his receipts were worthless, which suggests the impositions practiced on the victims. In the lands of the Duke of Medina Sidonia the same opposition was offered, and the High Court of Granada took advantage of the opportunity by issuing mandates restraining the collection, nor is it likely that it respected a royal cedula of July 4th, commanding it to abstain from interference. This resistance was fully justified. Even before Ferdinand's death, the proceedings of Vijasis and his underlings had aroused general indignation. At the Cortes of Burgos in 1515, the procurators of Seville had called the attention of the nation to their extortions in a petition which set forth their misdeeds, doubtless with exaggeration, but which, coming from those not personally interested, must have had substantial foundation in fact. Vijasis was accused of arbitrary assessments and of making up deficiencies by assessing again those who had already paid of cruelty, extortion, and fraud, of selling at auction property taken in execution at unusual places and times, so that he and his friends could buy it in, of using the machinery of the composition to collect his private debts, of defrauding the fisc by false returns, of charging to the contributors the exorbitant fees and expenses of his collectors, although the agreement provided that the fisc should bear them, of rendering to the contributors only a partial account of his collections and refusing to complete it, 
and in this charging himself with only forty ducats as collected in the canaries when there was evidence that the amount was more than a thousand in short he was accused of abusing his arbitrary powers in almost every conceivable way to oppress the people and enrich himself and numerous specific cases were cited in support of the allegations the magistrates of seville had endeavored to restrain him but he scorned their jurisdiction and therefore in the name of the whole community the king was supplicated to send to seville some one empowered to investigate and punish and make restitution to those wrongfully despoiled it was impossible to ignore such an appeal made in the face of the nation and the licenciado giron one of the judges of the high court of granada was dispatched to seville but only with power to investigate and report to the suprema within sixty days the time proved too short and after exceeding it he begged to be relieved on making a partial report in december fifteen sixteen the licenciado mateo vasquez a resident of seville was commissioned with the same powers to complete the investigation and also to inquire into many complaints coming from various places that prior to the appointment of Vijasis, pedro del alcazar and francisco de santa cruz and their employees had made large collections of which they had rendered no account that they had retained more than a million of maravedis while those who had paid them were subjected to levy and execution to enforce duplicate payments altogether the whole business would seem to have been a saturnalia of spoliation and embezzlement vasquez undertook the task and on september seventeenth fifteen seventeen he was ordered to furnish to vijasis a copy of the evidence to enable him to put in a defence after which all the papers were to be submitted to the suprema for its action if anything resulted from this it has left no trace in the documents the influence of vijasis carried him through for he was continued in office and went on with the work august thirteenth fifteen eighteen charles v ordered an audit of his accounts and payment of balances due which he skilfully parried a new assessment was ordered to make good any part of the eighty thousand ducats that might still be uncollected and this was given to him to enforce the old methods were still pursued for in march fifteen nineteen charles was obliged to write vigorously to the count of cabra the marquis of priego and the alcalde major of the marquis of gomares who had again interfered with his collectors and stopped all proceedings in their lands charles's flemish favorites were growing impatient to share in the elusive spoils he had granted to his chamberlain monsieur de bourrin the rest of his composition but it was not forthcoming nor were the accounts of vijasis in january fifteen nineteen he wrote to torquemada one of the seville inquisitors to enforce on vijasis with the utmost rigor of the law the payment to bourrin of any amounts collected and not paid over while if there was a balance uncollected vijasis was to assess it afresh and account for it to bourrin this produced nothing and on march twenty fourth charles emphatically repeated the order granting full power to enforce it with penalties at discretion vijasis however had experience in eluding such demands and ferdinand had not left much to glean in fifteen fifteen 
he had divided up the Cordova composition, giving twenty thousand to the Inquisition, and reserving thirty thousand for himself. Of this he had received twenty thousand, and the remaining ten he granted to the Marquis of Denia. But when the latter presented this order to Vijasis, he was told that eight thousand was covered by previous grants, and he could only have two thousand. Denia complained to Ferdinand, by that time mortally sick, who on December 4th assented to the transfer to him of the previous grants. But Jiménez, in transmitting this order to Vijasis, made a condition that the twenty thousand for the Inquisition must first be paid, and he subsequently suspended Denia's grant altogether. The Marquis complained of this to Charles, who from Ghent, May 22, 1517, ordered Jiménez to lift the suspension. But again Jiménez insisted with Bijasis that the Inquisition must first be paid. The funds seemed to evaporate and vanish into thin air. It is probable that Dania got little or nothing, and that Borain fared no better, for Charles's prime favorite, Adrian de Croix, received as his share of the spoils only the seven hundred and fifty thousand maravedis, the penalties for delay, which had been assigned to the tribunal of Seville. The insatiable Calcena and Aguirre, however, secured a thousand ducats, which in 1515 Ferdinand granted them in recompense for their labors on the composition. Thus for ten years the new Christians of a large part of Spain had been harried and impoverished under delusive promises of exemption, and of the monies thus extorted, but little reached either the crown or the Inquisition. The Tribunal of Seville, indeed, can have received virtually nothing, for as we have seen in 1556, its Archbishop Valdez asserted that, since the beginning of the century, it was so impoverished that it could support but a single inquisitor and pay only one-third of the ordinary salaries. It would be impossible now to conjecture what was the amount of which the industrious and producing classes of Spain were thus despoiled, or what was the sum of misery thus inflicted although we may estimate the retribution which followed in the disorganization of Spanish industries, and the retardation of economic development. What reached the royal treasury and the money-chests of the Inquisition was but a portion of the values of which the owners were deprived. The assets taken melted in the hands of the spoilers. The expenses of the trials, which became inordinately prolonged, and the maintenance of the prisoners consumed a considerable part dilapidation and peculation which even ferdinand's incessant vigilance could not prevent were the source of constant loss even without these the necessity for immediate realization to supply the peremptory demands of the treasury and the tribunals threw an enormous amount of property and goods of all kinds on the market enforced sales which were inevitably sacrifices it was the established rule perpetually enunciated that everything except money and securities was to be sold at auction, the real estate on the thirteenth day after condemnation, in presence of the receiver and notary of sequestrations. Notwithstanding, all precautions, collusion, and fraud were perpetual. It was doubtless as an effort to check them that Valdez, in 1547, ordered that real estate or censos or government securities should not be sold without consulting the Suprema, 
together with an attested statement of past income and probable proceeds, and this was followed, in 1553, with an order that property in litigation was not to be sold. Precautions, however, were unavailing. The memorial of 1623 to the Suprema remarks that there are many opportunities for human wickedness in the sequestration, valuation, and sale of sequestrated property. The valuations are habitually too low, and the sales are made at the lowest prices. Whenever possible, property should be brought to the city of the tribunal, be properly valued, and the receiver be forbidden to sell it for less. When sales have to be made at the place of arrest, they should be by public auction, in the presence of the commissioner and of a familiar to see that just prices are obtained. The Suprema seems to have mooned over this until 1635, when it called for reports as to the manner in which the auctions were held, and whether just prices were obtained. If the property was in some small place, it must be brought to a larger town to prevent fraud. End of Book 5, Chapter 1, Part 4 Recording by Guero